Well, turn with me to uh, Matthew chapter 27. I have some good news and some bad news for you, church. We're in the midst of a series called Good News, and I started with the bad news. The bad news is, is that uh, we are born into this world corrupted people. We are, we've been corrupted by sin, and we have selfish desires. We have sinful desires that we are born into this world, not inherently good people, as the culture would teach us, but we are born into this world in need of a Savior. We are also born into this world separated from God enemies from God, and we are born into this world deserving of death. Our sin has has made us deserving of death, and the bad news is is there's nothing you can do to fix it. That's the bad news. We talked about that during week one, but the good news is this. We talked last week how the good news is that Jesus came to be with you. When you were powerless to reach God, when you were powerless to do anything about your circumstance— God stepped off of his throne in heaven and became, he came in the form of human likeness and he came to be with you in the midst of your sin, in the midst of your guilt and shame. Jesus came to be with you. Today we're going to talk about another part of the good news. It's that Jesus died to forgive you. This whole series is based off of what we see in Acts chapter 2 when uh, Peter stands up in front of thousands of people in Jerusalem. And he gives the first gospel message after the resurrection. And he breaks the gospel into four pillars as he's explaining the gospel to people walking by. Uh, He breaks the gospel into four segments. The first one is the incarnation, that Jesus came to be with you. He was a man. The second part is that he died to forgive you on the cross. It's the crucifixion. The third is the resurrection, that he rose again to give you new life. And the fourth is that he ascended to heaven and he sent the Holy Spirit to empower you and to give you victory. There's the gospel for you in four pillars. He came to be with you. He died to forgive you. He rose to give you new life. And he ascended to give you victory, to send you help in the Holy Spirit. And today, we're going to talk about his death. Now, I'm going to make a promise to you out the get-go. Today, I promise you're going to feel uncomfortable. As we talk about the gruesome details of Jesus' death. In fact, I would encourage you, if you have some older children in the room, that maybe you don't want them to hear some gruesome details Uh, Maybe you're not the one who watches The Passion of the Christ during Easter. You avoid that film. If that's you, uh, I would encourage you to send your kids to their age-appropriate classrooms at this time because we're going to talk about some of the bloody details of Jesus' death. Now, you might be asking, why, Pastor? Why do we talk about the, the bloody details? Here's why. Because God did not keep the death of his son quiet. He did not hide anything from us. He He placed his son high on a cross for all to see, walking by. And his gruesome death has been preserved in Scripture for all of eternity. We are always to keep the sacrifice of Jesus in our hearts and in our minds. In fact, it is the reason why we gather together. Today, we're going to be taking communion. In fact, if you didn't grab a communion element when you walked in, would you just raise your hand and we'll have some ushers bring you uh, a communion element. I want to make sure that everybody can participate with us. Uh, But the reason that one of the primary reasons that we gathered together, it all focuses around the death of Christ, his blood that was shed for us and his body that was broken for us. It is the reason we gather. And that is why we talk about the bloody details this morning. As Pentecostals, we love to talk about the resurrection, don't we? We love to talk about new life that Jesus gives us. But we forget that in order to have a resurrection, you have to first have a death, don't you? Same is true in our life. In order to share in Jesus' resurrection, and in order to share, to identify with Jesus' resurrection, you first have to die to yourself, to be buried with Christ, as Paul describes. And so we are going to talk about the death of Jesus today. We're going to talk about what Jesus endured on the cross, and then I'm going to focus on four significant events that happened at the moment of Jesus' death. And that will be kind of the lens that we will uh, read this passion, this passage of Scripture through. You know, ancient literature, it gives us very little about the process of crucifixion, and it gives us even less about the people who were executed. And we know uh, by studying um, Roman culture, 
that the bodies of those crucified, they would be left hanging on the cross for a time for birds to eat. And eventually, these bodies would be flung into a common, unmarked grave. And it's almost as if being forgotten to history, not knowing their names, never remembering them again, was part of the fate of those who were crucified. And so there's a reason that we don't know much about people who were crucified um, in the early centuries, it's because a part of the crucified's fate was that they would be forgotten to history. But we have a major exception to this rule because we have so little about crucifixion in ancient literature, yet there is one major exception. We have four detailed accounts about a crucifixion. It's an execution, and it's of the same man, Jesus Christ. We have detailed accounts of the same man's execution. Today, crucifixion is still considered to be one of the most painful ways to die. It was started by the Persians in the 6th century BC, and it was abolished by Constantine in the 4th century AD. So for about a thousand years, it was used as a method of execution. Now, crucifixion was reserved for the most hideous crimes, the most heinous crimes. It was the most shameful way to die. Because you were put on display on a road or a highway, you would be up there on the cross naked for all to see as they walked by. It was one of the most shameful ways to die, and it was, it was a reminder for those walking under the cross to not commit the same sins that the person, to not do the same thing and break the same law as the person on the cross did. But it was a terrible way to die. It was a slow death, a painful death. In fact, our English word, excruciating, comes from the Latin word meaning uh, as painful as a crucifixion. And so the word excruciating actually comes from this idea of painful as a crucifixion. There's a woman whose name is uh, Kathleen Schreer. She has a PhD. She's an associate professor in the Department of Biology and Chemistry at Azusa Pacific University. And each year she presents a special lecture on the science of Christ's crucifixion. She talks about the physiology of the crucifixion. And she details the physiological processes a typical crucified victim underwent. And she teaches her students to see Christ's death on the cross with new understanding. Now, I'm going to give you kind of an abbreviated version of this. But I would encourage you, I will make this article available on our website if you'd like to read more. It's fascinating. It'll break your heart. It'll completely break your heart. But... It gives you such an appreciation for what Jesus did for us. And it makes you see his death with new eyes, with fresh eyes. I want to start uh, in her article. She begins in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus, in the Bible, it says that he was in such anguish that he was sweating blood as he prayed in the garden. Now, this sweating blood, it is a rare medical condition called hematohydrosis. And it's in this condition, the capillary blood vessels that feed the sweat glands, they break down. And blood is released from the vessels and mixes with the sweat. And so your body literally sweats drops of blood. And this is a result of extreme mental anguish or high, high anxiety. Like I said, it's very rare. And one of the side effects of hematohydrosis is that your skin becomes very tender. As you sweat blood. So already from the offset, before Jesus is even arrested, his skin is tender to the touch. He's already in pain, even before a hand is laid on him. He's up all night praying. He doesn't get any sleep. So Jesus is completely exhausted. And he's arrested. Then he's taken uh, from Pilate to Herod and back again, which is approximately a two and a half mile Walk, And so he's exhausted. He's tender to the touch. Now he's forced to walk two and a half miles there and back. He is already exhausted. Then he is convicted and he is sentenced to death on the cross. Now, Roman law required a flogging to happen before you were crucified. Now, Jesus would have been whipped with uh, the whips that they had were these leather strands. And in the middle of the strips were these big metal balls. And at the, at the very end of the strip were, were sheep bone or metal shards 
And so it would cause deep bruising as those metal balls hit your skin. And as that sheep bone entered into your back, it would tear all the way through the, to the bone. And it would rip, as they pull out, it would rip his skin all the way to the bone. And so by the time Jesus is being done, uh, after this whipping takes place, his back would have looked just like ribbons of flesh hanging off of his back. And Jesus would have lost an extreme amount of blood at this time. So his body would be in shock. And to stop some of the bleeding, they still had to get Jesus to the cross. So to stop some of the bleeding, the soldiers put a robe around of his around his back and it would stop some of the bleeding for a, a portion of time and next the guards they made this crown of thorns because they called him the king of the jews that was his sentence that's why he was being that was his official reason for being executed because they, they called him king of the jews and they made this crown of thorns with giant spikes and they placed it on his head and they would beat it into his skull with a wooden stick and he would begin to bleed from his head profusely Next, they would whip off his robe, and the bleeding would start, start again. His body would still be in shock. They'd throw him onto the ground. Well, first, before they did that, they made him carry his own cross. Now, at the time, uh, they, they had a, a type of cross where the vertical portion of the cross would have already been laid in the ground. It was called the stipes. And the stipes would already be placed in the ground, so they give Jesus the horizontal portion, which is called uh, the patibulum. And so they forced Jesus to carry this heavy vertical beam called the patibulum. But Jesus was too weak and too tired and too beaten to be able to carry this cross. So they call a man from the crowd who helps him carry his cross outside of the city. Then they would throw Jesus onto the ground. And they have to nail him to this beam, to this cross. So what they would do is they would take these eight-inch nails... And they would place them not in his hands, because if you place a nail in your hand, your, your body weight would cause uh, your, your hand to rip open. So they placed the nails between these two bones in your wrist to hold your body weight. So they would place a nail in each wrist and a nail in his feet. And as they do that, any major artery or nerve that was right there would be completely severed. So Jesus is experiencing the full agony of major nerves being completely severed as they're nailing him to this wooden beam. Then they would lift him up on the cross and the full weight of his body would drop onto the nails. And when he drops down, his body pulls down on the diaphragm and the air moves into his lungs and remains there. So in order for Jesus to exhale, in order for him to speak, he actually has to push up on the nails by his hands and his feet. He'd have to push up in order to say anything and to even to exhale out. We know in Scripture that Jesus made several statements while he was on the cross. In fact, we could preach a whole other sermon on the seven statements that Jesus made on the cross. He said, he pulled up. Imagine Jesus pulling up on these nails to say, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He speaks to the criminal on the cross next to him and says, today you'll see me in paradise. He makes a statement to his mother and to John, his disciple who was standing there. He says, it is finished. And he also says, Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. He makes all of these statements while he pushes up on these nails. And as he gives his spirit to God, Jesus dies on the cross. And so what happens next is that the soldiers go to the criminals next to him. And in order to speed up the crucifixion process, they broke the legs of the criminals to his right and to his left. But when they got to Jesus, he was already dead. So they took a spear and they pierced it into his side. And the Bible says that when they pierced his side, it's blood and water flowed out. Now, the fact that water flowed from Jesus' side, it's a medical condition. It indicates that Jesus had heart failure. That he most likely died of a heart attack or lack of oxygen. And so they, they pierce his side, blood and water flow out, and it's an indication that Jesus died of a heart attack. Essentially, Jesus died of a broken heart. I know it's difficult to talk about the experience of the cross. But I believe it's such a valuable reminder of how much Jesus loves you. Do you understand that if you were the only person Jesus had to die for, he still would have gone through with it. He still would have gone to the cross. I know it's easy to put yourself in this big, 
world bubble and say he died for the whole world. But you have to think of this, that Jesus had your face in his mind. That when he went to the cross, he died knowing that you would have a relationship with him, with him if he did this. And he went through all of this agony on the cross so that you can have a relationship with his father. He loves you that much. I hope you're with me in Matthew 27. We're going to talk about the four events that happened in Jesus' death. I know that was a heavy part of the message, but we're going to get to some good news. That this was all for a reason. Jesus had all of, the, all of this in mind when he went to the cross. In Matthew 27, we're going to start from verse 45 through 54. I'm going to give you the four events up front. The first event was midday darkness. That there was darkness over all the land. The second event was that the temple curtain was torn in two. The third event that happened during Jesus' death was that there was an earthquake and the rocks split. And the fourth event was that tombs, the Bible says that tombs were opened during his crucifixion. Let's read it together. Verses 45 through 54. It says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. So that's from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. So for three hours in the middle of the day, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, leme sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah comes to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Let me stop there for a moment. You know why Jesus yielded up his spirit? Because death could not take it from him. He was God, and he had to give it up. Death could not take the life of our God, and Jesus willingly surrendered to death. And not surrendered, but he willingly gave up his life in that moment. He willingly laid his life down when he said, Father, take my spirit. Into your hands I yield my spirit. Verse 51, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That's an important little statement that was made there. And the earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Wow, powerful moment. The first dramatic event that happened happened during the crucifixion was midday darkness that lasted from 12 to 3 p.m. And many people have wondered whether or not this was a solar eclipse. But solar eclipses only last for minutes. They don't last for hours. And so uh, we can look back in astronomical calculations that rule out a solar eclipse from, from 30 to 33 AD for the crucifixion dates. And so we, we don't think, many scholars don't believe it was a, a solar eclipse. It was a miraculous moment, this, this divine moment that had happened where darkness covered the land. Matthew says it fell on all the land, but that word for land can also be translated earth. So it fell on all the earth, meaning that people all the way to Rome and to Greece and other Mediterranean cities, they were experiencing this darkness as well. In fact, we have extra biblical documentation of this midday darkness, not just in the Bible, but the, uh, the Christian apologist Tertullian he wrote this in the second century. He called it a cosmic or world event that was evidently visible in Rome, Athens, other Mediterranean cities. And this is what he wrote when he challenged his non-Christian adversaries with these words. He said, at the moment of Christ's death, the light departed from the sun and the land was darkened at noonday. Which wonder is related in your own annals and preserved in your archives to this day? 
We have another extra biblical documentation. The Greek non-Christian writer, Phlegon, he wrote this in 137 AD. He reported that in the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, that's 33 AD, there was the greatest eclipse of the sun. It became night in the sixth hour of the day, which is noon, so that the stars even appeared in the heavens. So even from outside of the Bible, we have documentation of a midday darkness that happened all over the land in 33 AD. Now, what is so interesting about darkness covering the land during Jesus's crucifixion is that the Old Testament often equates or, or uh, it, it compares darkness with God's wrath. Darkness often signifies God's wrath in the Old Testament. Let me give you some examples in scripture. The prophet Amos, he prophesied this about the day of the Lord. Listen to this prophecy, Amos 8, 9 through 10. It says, in that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will make that time like morning for an only sun and at the end of it, like a bitter day. Zephaniah 1, 14 through 15. Here's another example. The great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. The cry on the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. Listen to this. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. The last example I want to give you is what what was the plague that preceded the final plague, the final death of the firstborn son? What was the plague that preceded the death of the firstborn son? It was darkness all over the land. You see, Old Testament prophets described the day of the Lord as a dark and gloomy day when the nations would experience wrath. Hold on a sec. Did the nations experience wrath in the moment of Jesus' crucifixion? Well, let's put this together. Wrath is often associated with darkness, but we also see in the Old Testament there's this different imagery of wrath that is given to us by the prophets Jeremiah and Isaiah. And it's this idea of a cup of wrath. A cup of wrath. Jeremiah describes it as a cup of wrath in uh, Jeremiah 25, 15 through 17. It says, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to me. Take this cup of wine of wrath from my hands and give it to the nations whom I send you to drink from it. Then they will drink and loudly vomit and act insanely because of the sword that I'm going to send among them. So they took, so I took the cup from the Lord's hand and I gave it to all the nations to whom the Lord sent me to drink from it. What does this have to do with the crucifixion? You see, any time that the cup of wrath is mentioned in Scripture... It is describing something. It's, it's, it, it, God had always been. God was always Israel's shield. He was always their safeguard against enemy nations that would do Israel harm. He was always their protector. And when God is describing his cup of wrath to Jeremiah, he's saying, give it to the nations. What he's saying is, I'm about to lift my presence. I'm, I'm, about, to, I'm about to let uh, the nations have their way with Israel. I'm about to exit the scene. And I'm going to be absent from them. God's, and so God, anytime that the cup of wrath is mentioned in the Old Testament, it describes uh, God removing himself from the equation. See, God's wrath is sometimes in the Bible depicted as, you know, we often think of God's wrath as, as Zeus with his lightning bolts, right? God sending lightning bolts from heaven, or we think of the ten plagues of Egypt, or Sodom and Gomorrah, or the flood. And while those instances occur in the Bible, what this cup of wrath is referring to is God is about to remove himself as Israel's protector. And he's going to let evil nations have their way with his people. So God's wrath is depicted as his complete absence. When God removes himself from the equation, then we experience punishment. That God is a God of goodness. He is our protector. He is, he is the one who brings good into the world. And when he removes himself from the equation and allows the wickedness to have its way, then wrath comes. Punishment comes. Evil comes. You see, this is significant because Jesus saw himself as the one who would drink the cup of God's wrath. 
And he recognized that the father had removed himself from Jesus. Because Jesus even quotes from Psalm 22. What does Jesus say when he's on the cross? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, in the moment of Christ's crucifixion, this darkness covers the land. And it signifies that God is pouring all of his wrath on Jesus. That he is putting the punishment of all the world's sin on his son while he is hanging on the cross. And it is represented with darkness overhead. But this imagery of the cup of wrath, it goes even deeper. We see even Jesus kind of hint and nod to this cup uh, when he's approached by the mother of James and John. The mother of James and John comes to Jesus in Matthew chapter 20. And she asks him a very audacious question. She says, she says, uh, would you permit my sons to sit at your right and your left in your kingdom? And this is how Jesus responded. Verse 22 of Matthew 20. He says, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Then he asks them, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? What they say? We can. They answered, we can. And Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those whom they have been prepared for by my father. See, Jesus, when he asked them this question, was referring to the cup of wrath that he was going to drink on behalf of the nations. These Old Testament prophets, Amos was prophesying this day of the Lord is a day of wrath on all the nations. And Jesus takes the cup that the nations were supposed to drink, that you and I are supposed to drink. And he says, no, I will drink this instead. And he tells James and John, I am going to drink the cup of the, the cup of wrath. But he looks at them and says, you will drink from my cup. Because in the last supper, when they were up, when they were in a room sharing a last meal before Jesus was arrested, they were sharing this Passover meal together. And it is still to this day tradition for Jews when they, uh, when they, um, practice the Passover meal that they drink from four cups of wine. And these four cups commemorate and symbolize what happened when the Israelites came out of Egypt during the Exodus. And so the first cup is the cup of sanctification. The second cup that they drink from is the cup of deliverance. The third cup is the cup of redemption. And this is the cup that many scholars believe Jesus shared with his disciples. The cup that he was telling James and John, this is the cup that you will drink from. I will drink from the cup of wrath, but you will drink from my cup, the cup of redemption. And the fourth cup is the cup of praise. Sanctification, deliverance, redemption, praise. Then Jesus hints at this cup once again in Matthew twenty six thirty nine. He says, as he's praying in the garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26, 39, and he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and he prayed saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Here's the good news for you, church. The cup of wrath was meant for you, but Jesus drank from it on your behalf. And the darkness was an indication that God was placing all of the punishment for your sin on the perfect Savior while he hung on the cross. And if you put your faith in the sacrifice of Jesus, you do not have to fear punishment from God. He is on your side. Come on, some of you have walked into church today. Maybe you've been away from God for a while. You've been away from church or you haven't, you haven't spoken to him in a while. And you think God is against you, that he's angry with you. This moment in Christ's crucifixion is an indication that God is not against you. That all of his anger, all of his wrath, all of the punishment for sin was placed on Jesus on the cross. Therefore, when God looks at you, you are no longer his enemy. He is on your side. He is for you. He is not against you. He does not want evil to come to you. He has a good and abundant life. And if you say yes to the person of Jesus, say yes to the sacrifice that Jesus made, you can be certain That your sins are forgiven and Jesus does not look at you as his enemy. God does not look at you as his enemy. You are his child. You are his friend. The punishment for our sin was on Jesus. Let me give you one last scripture before we move on to the second event. Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. Surely 
He took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. This was centuries before Jesus was crucified, by the way. The prophet Isaiah wrote this. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Midday darkness. The second event that happened was that the temple curtain was torn from top to bottom. What is the significance of the temple curtain being torn? You see, the temple had different areas of worship around it. The first area was on the very outermost part of the temple. They were called the outer courts. And it's where the people of Israel would bring their animal sacrifices, and the sacrifices would be made in the outer courts. So there was, a, there was the altar of sacrifice in the outer courts, and there was also the bronze basin, where the priests would wash themselves and clean themselves before they entered the next part of the temple, which was called the holy place. And in the holy place... The priests would minister to God at the table of showbread. There was a golden lampstand. There was an altar of incense. And they would minister to God in the holy place. But they were not allowed to step foot into the next part, which was the holiest of holy places. The holy of holies. And it was where the Ark of the Covenant resided. And God's presence was in the Ark of the Covenant. Now, what separated the holiest of holy places, God's presence from the priests, what separated the two of them was a massive curtain that was 30 feet wide, 30 feet tall, and four inches thick. A massive curtain that separated God's presence from the holy place, from the place where the priests ministered to God. And only once per year would the high priest enter the holiest of holy places. But first, he would light the altar of incense. And he would open up the curtain just just a little bit on the bottom. And he would scoot the altar of incense underneath the curtain. And he would allow the, the incense, the smoke from that altar, he would allow it to fill the room to obscure his view of the Ark of the Covenant. Because he wasn't supposed to directly look at the Ark of the Covenant. And so the smoke in the room would obscure his view. And then he would tie a rope around his waist. What's the rope for, Pastor, you might be asking? Well, he would tie a rope around his waist, and he had these little bells on his robe that would jingle. And as he would enter the holiest of holy places, he would sprinkle the blood of an animal on the Ark of the Covenant seven times. He would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, the golden top of the Ark of the Covenant, seven times. And all the while, his little bells would be jingling. And if if the priests on the other side of the curtain didn't hear the bells jingling anymore and heard a thud, then they knew, okay, our man's dead. We've got to pull him back. And they would take that rope and they'd pull his body to the other side of the curtain. You see, nobody was allowed access to the presence of God except once per year. God was just too holy. He was, he was just too good for a sinful human to approach his presence. And the good news is that when Jesus was crucified, the Bible says that the curtain that separated God's presence from the rest of the world, it was torn from top to bottom, meaning that God himself reached down and he took hold of that massive curtain and he shredded in two as if to say, feel free to come on in. There is nothing anymore that is separating you from experiencing my presence. You don't have to fear me any longer. Instead, you can approach my presence with confidence, knowing that you have been cleansed by the blood of my son. Feel free to step in. You have access. If you put your faith in Jesus, if you put your faith in Jesus' death, you can come confidently into God's presence at any time. Jesus' death has forever removed the barrier that separated you from God. His death took judgment so that you wouldn't have to face it. And his death has freed you from ever from having to relate to God through priests and rituals and animal sacrifices. His death means that you never have to be afraid of relating to God because of your failures. Oftentimes we, 
we, we separate ourselves from God when we sin. We say, I'm not worthy. But God says, no, I tore the curtain. There is nothing that is going to keep you from me now. You don't have to worry about death. You don't have to worry about punishment. Just come to me. Come to me in your mess. Come to me with your filth. Come to me with your questions. Just come into my presence. Now, here's an interesting thought. I wonder if you've ever considered this before, but the Ark of the Covenant was stolen by the Babylonians when they overthrew Jerusalem in the 5th century B.C. So the presence of God at the time of the crucifixion, it wasn't even in the temple at the time. The Ark of the Covenant wasn't even in the temple at the time, and yet there were still religious priests and Pharisees performing empty acts of ministry to absolutely no one. Can you imagine being a priest in the holy place, ministering in the temple at the moment of Jesus' death when the curtain is torn in two, and this massive curtain falls to the ground and startles you, and you look into the holy of holy places, and what do you see as you look into the holiest of holy places? Absolutely nothing. And it is a bitter reminder that everything that you have been doing up to this point, they're just fruitless deeds. You've been ministering to no one. Your actions, your good deeds, your, your religious spirit, the, the, everything is for nothing. God's not even there. It's a reminder that only an act of God can save us. Your good deeds cannot save you. Your good behavior cannot save you. You on your best day, it is not good enough. Only an act of God can save you. The fact that Jesus died for you, the the curtain was torn in two. The third event that happened was an earthquake. What's the significance of an earthquake? Earthquakes in the Bible, they often accompanied uh, divine revelations, or un- they were a unique act of God. And there's another very memorable earthquake that happens in the Bible. And it happens in Exodus 19. When God tells Moses, he says, I'm about to descend upon Mount Sinai. I'm about to meet with my people. So Moses, gather up all of Israel and bring them to the foot of the mountain. And as the people come, <clears throat> here's what it says, Exodus 19, 17 through 19. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. You see, this is the moment that God invites his people to come and meet with him, and the mountain is shaking violently. But what did the people do? If you continue reading the story, they look at the mountain, they see the fire, they see the smoke and the thunder and the lightning, and they become afraid. And they say, Moses, we're not getting close to this guy. We're not going to approach God. You go up for us, and you come back and tell us what he said. Okay? And so Moses alone goes up to the mountain. And because the people of God refused to have relationship with him, God sent Moses back down the mountain with the law. This is where Israel receives the law from God. And it's represented with a massive earthquake that happens in Exodus chapter 19. Did you know that there were 613 commandments given to Israel on that day? It wasn't just two tablets with five commandments on each one. No, it was 613 commandments given to Israel on that day. And if the people wanted to have any relationship with God, they had to uphold all 613 laws. But that was impossible, wasn't it? So God formally introduced different animal sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people when they broke one of these laws. That's a lot of broken laws. That's a lot of dead animals. And when Jesus was a human, he perfectly obeyed every single law. All 613, he fulfilled every law to the T, even up to his death. Did you know that one of the statements Jesus makes while he's hanging on the cross is he looks at his mother and he says, Woman, behold your son. And he looks at his disciple John and says, Son, behold 
your mother. You see, it was Jewish law for the firstborn of every family to care for his widowed mother, uh, to, to make sure that his widowed mother was cared for. So even as Jesus is dying on the cross, he's thinking about his mom. He is the firstborn son, and he looks at John, and he, what he's saying is, John, you are now going to take care of my mother. Son, behold your mother. He is upholding the Jewish law even while he is hanging on the cross. Here's the good news this morning from the earthquake. The earthquake was an indication that Jesus had fulfilled the law of Moses. It's as if God was saying, this has been, this has been finished. It has been completed. Jesus has upheld everything. It was literally an earth-shaking event indicating that animal sacrifices would no longer be necessary to atone for the sins of the people because the perfect Lamb of God had died for the sins of the world. There's a word we use in the Bible that describes this. It's the word redemption. He has redeemed you. When Jesus died on the cross, it means that he purchased you back from sin and death. You were created in the image of God to do the works of God, to be like God. And the enemy came and corrupted our hearts and stole us away from God. But in this moment of Jesus' death, he purchased you back with his blood. He redeemed you back to a, to a relationship with his father. It's interesting that another earthquake happens the very next chapter in Matthew 28. And it's when the stone is rolled away. The earth shakes violently once again. Could this be an indication that a new law was being given? It wasn't a law of rules and performance, but it was a law of grace. It's as if God was using the earth saying, this is earth shaking people. Pay attention to this. You don't have to abide by all these rules and performance and animal sacrifices and rituals anymore. I'm giving you a new law. It's a law of grace. Where I seek after you and I choose you despite your sin, despite your mistakes. I run after you and I make a way for us to have a relationship. There was an earthquake. And the final event were that tombs were opened. Some of you in this room, I know you, you caught that for the first time. You never read the scripture like this before. That the dead rose from their tombs. The tombs were split open, and, and after Jesus' resurrection, the people that were dead in these tombs, they came out of the tombs. I think the message is clear here, that Jesus' death brought life to the world. Here's the good news. If you put your trust in Jesus, you don't have to fear death. As you grow older, and you feel your body wearing down, and you experience loved ones pass away, you can live with confidence that you will also come forth and you will get up out of that cemetery one day when Jesus returns. That death has no hold over you. It is done. Death has been defeated. Jesus brought life to the world. I've, I've seen this with believers who are facing their deaths. I've held the hands of believers who are uh, moments away from experiencing heaven. And there is a confidence and a peace that is on their face, almost an excitement, because they know I'm about to see my Jesus face to face. Death has no hold on me. There is nothing to fear here. And in contrast, I've held the hands of people in their last moments of life are fearful, and they don't know what's going to happen. And they say, I had one gentleman tell me, I don't, I'm just afraid of the unknown. I'm afraid of what's going to happen. And I said, but but don't you know, he had grown up in church. He had been to church. He'd, he'd been in our church. I said, don't you know that you know what's going to happen? Jesus is waiting on the other side for you. I said, and I began to remind him of what the Bible says. That you do not have to fear death. I think an indication of your faith is placed on how much you fear death. If you have, if you believe in Jesus, there is no fear. Death has no fear. Death has no hold on your life. There is no reason to fear death any longer. I'm going to invite Mary to come up. In a moment, we're going to take communion together. But I want to explain how this works. When you put your trust in Jesus' death to forgive you, you begin in that moment a personal relationship with God. 
And the more you experience the reality of God's love in your life, the easier it becomes to believe that Jesus' death will also conquer your physical death. As you begin to know God more and more and spend time with Jesus more and more, the fear of death falls off of you. So why not start putting your trust in Jesus today? The sooner you receive forgiveness from him, the sooner you can start experiencing God's love over your life. And the sooner you experience a love relationship with God, the sooner you can experience the deepening confidence that not even death can overcome God's love. It is finished. You can look and read the story of Jesus' death and see that the darkness means that God's wrath was poured on Jesus, that he doesn't pour it on me. He's not going to pour his punishment on me. He poured it on Jesus. The curtain was torn, meaning that even when I sin, I don't have to be afraid of coming to God. That you don't have to, that relationship doesn't have to be mediated by a priest, an animal sacrifice. Jesus was the high priest, according to Hebrews, who stepped beyond the veil. And he was also the sacrificial lamb that atoned for your sins. You don't have to be afraid of God's presence. The earthquake is an indication that a new law has been given. It is a law of grace. You don't have to worry about performance, about being being good in order to earn your salvation. That's not how it works. But the earthquake means that a law of grace has been given to you. And the tombs being opened is a reminder that death has no hold on us any longer. That we have life forever in the person of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus. I'm going to ask you, would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Today's Palm Sunday. What better day to say yes to Jesus? What better day to experience for the first time his love? Maybe you're here this morning and you walked in with guilt and shame. Maybe you maybe you came here just really with no expectations, not knowing what to expect. But I believe you're here for a reason, that Jesus wants to encounter you today. He's got something for you. And if you're here this morning, you've never said yes to the person of Jesus. You've never, you've never believed in his sacrifice. You've never embraced it as a sacrifice that was made on your personal behalf. If that's you and you say, today I want to acknowledge that Jesus died for me for the first time and to invite him into your life, would you do something bold? Raise your hand for me to see right now. Let me see your hand if that's you. I don't want to let this moment slip by without an opportunity to extend God's love over to you to say that this grace is for you. Let me see your hand. I see one hand there. Anybody else? Don't let this moment pass you by. Praise God. Would you repeat after me? Jesus, I love you. And I thank you for your sacrifice. I realize that I need it. That I can't earn salvation. I need your sacrifice. Forgive me of my sins. And come be the Lord of my life. Fill me with your spirit and empower me to do the same things that you do. I love you, Jesus, with all of my heart. In your name we pray. Amen. If you have your communion elements with you, take the cup and the bread. This is where, this is what this is all about. It is remembering the sacrifice that Jesus made. This represents the cup of redemption as well. Remember that word? To purchase you back. You have been bought with the blood of Jesus. He has purchased you back. And as we read in Isaiah 53, his body was crushed. His body was broken. Everybody take your bread and break it. His body was broken for your body to be whole. By his wounds, we are healed. The Lord has placed on him the iniquity of us all. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your body, your broken body. Thank you, Jesus, that your body was broken so that mine could have wholeness and healing. God, I thank you that 
your sacrifice not only took care of my physical body, but it also took care of my mental life and my emotional life. And you came to bring wholeness to my life. And Father, we need help. There's a lot of areas in our life that need to be mended. So Jesus, we we embrace your sacrifice and claim it over ourselves. Would you take this with me, church? I thank you that you've given us forgiveness because of your blood. It has washed us white as snow. Or once we were separated from you, had no access to you, only through rituals and rites and priests and Jesus, you gave us full access to the presence of God. And we are beyond grateful you chose us. You sought after us. We, There was nothing we could do to change our circumstance, but you broke through heaven and you emptied yourself so that we could find your grace. Jesus, we thank you for that sacrifice. Take the cup with me. Would you stand with me, church? Father, I pray a blessing over this body of believers and I pray that this sacrifice would be made even more real to us as time goes on that we would always come back to this moment and realize uh, reflect on the sacrifice that you made the, the, the bloody details and all knowing that you went through so much just to set us free and God we are eternally grateful we, we cannot say thank you enough we love you and we give you our lives Lord, I pray that you would uh, fill uh, the people here fresh with your Holy Spirit. Give them a new joy of their salvation, God. I pray that you would empower them with new boldness to tell people about you, to tell people about what you've done, that we would not keep it to ourselves. We would not think that this was just for me, but God, that you would you would uh, excite us to wake up and to say other people need to hear the good news, that, that this is for everyone. Jesus, we thank you. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Love you, church. We'll see you on Easter Sunday next week. Remember, 9 and 11 a.m. I'm excited. We'll see you then.